Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Julia Brody, Executive Director of the Silent Spring Institute in Massachusetts, a distinguished research organization that studies the links between the environment and breast cancer. Let me say a little about Julia and about Silent Spring Institute. Julia Brody is the Executive Director of Silent Spring uh, Institute, and she is a leader in research on breast cancer and the, and the environment, and in community-based research and public engagement in science. Her research focuses on connecting breast cancer advocacy and environmental justice in a study of household exposures to endocrine-disrupting chemicals and air pollutants through a collaboration of Silent Spring Institute, Communities for a Better Environment, which is a California-based environmental justice organization, and researchers at Brown University and the University of California, Berkeley. Since 1996, Brody has been the principal investigator of the Cape Cod Breast Cancer and Environment Study, a case control study of 2,100 women that includes testing for 89 endocrine disruptors in hormones and historical exposure mapping. Dr. Brody led the publication of Environmental Factors and Breast Cancer, a supplement in Cancer, which is a journal of the American Cancer Society, which reports on a two-year scientific review of evidence on animal mammary gland carcinogens and epidemiologic studies of breast cancer and environmental pollutants, diet, body size, and physical activity. The Silent Spring Institute, which Julia directs, builds on a unique partnership of scientists, physicians, public health advocates, and community activists to identify and break the links between the environment and women's health, especially breast cancer. This collaboration began in 1994 after members of the Massachusetts Breast Cancer Coalition called for a scientifically sound investigation into elevated breast cancer rates on Cape Cod. To ensure action, they founded a laboratory of their own and named it Silent Spring Institute in tribute to Rachel Carson, whose landmark book Silent Spring launched the modern environmental movement. Carson died of breast cancer just two years after the book was published. And the Institute does many things. I'll, I'll let uh, Julia speak further to that. Now, we're really privileged today to have uh, a number of Julia's colleagues here with us. Uh, we're also privileged that Charles Patton, who directs the Commonweal Biomonitoring Resource Center and has been very involved with Julia and her colleagues at Silent Spring, is here. And it gives me special pleasure to say that Susan Braun, the new executive director of Commonweal, is here, who is the uh, former CEO of the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Fund and was, played a, a critical role in the development of some of this work while she was at Komen. She then moved on to be the executive director of the American Society of Clinical Oncology Cancer Foundation and then came to Commonweal. And we're just thrilled that Susan is here. She's been with us since January. So this will be a, a rich conversation. We're also hoping that some colleagues for, from Communities for a Better Environment uh, in, are going to get here. And, but they're not here yet. And they're on their way. They're on their way. And we will introduce them later in the conversation. So um, 
With that, Julia, do you want to lead the introduction of your colleagues who are here already? Sure, I, I would be delighted to. So they're, they're sprinkled around the room, I, but I want to first introduce Charles, who really made the connection for us to Bellinas. Charles served on the advisory council for the project that we're going to talk about. And the advisory council decided that we needed a, a rural California comparison for our study. And, and Charles came forward and made the connection to all of you, and we're just so grateful. And I'd like to introduce my colleague, Ruth Ann Rudell, who's at Silent Spring Institute and is our toxicologist, and all your chemicals questions will go to her. And Phil Brown at Brown University. Um, we've been collaborating with Phil and with Rachel morello Frosch at the University of California, Berkeley, um, through this study now for five years and before that with Phil as well, and it's been just a wonderful, rich collaboration. And uh, Ami Zota, who's a postdoctoral fellow at Silent Spring Institute, and um, all, all of you who got your results and the numbers that you see were generated for, by Ami, so really grateful for her work. And Sarah, uh, Sarah Dunnigan's a research assistant on this project, and so she's keeping, keeping it all moving and going, and uh, the handouts that, that you see are her work, and um, she's been a really in incredible contributor to this project. I'd like to just uh, call out a couple of people. Julia and Heather, would you both introduce yourselves briefly? Sure. I'm Julia Varshavsky, and I work with the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, um, and I was actually a participant in the, the Bolinas uh, rural study, uh, death study, uh, when I lived here in Bolinas a couple years ago. And you, in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, you specifically do what? I coordinate the uh, Fertility and Reproductive Health Working Group. So we're uh, working with partners in the Reproductive Health and Environment movement to really um, uh, disseminate science uh, to health professionals and um, and others um, to to really move the work forward on an, on the professional level. And Heather Sarantis. I'm Heather Sarantis, and I work here at Commonwealth and the Women's Health Program Manager, and I uh, coordinate the Women's Health and Environment Initiative, which is a cross-movement effort between environmental health and justice and reproductive health and justice advocates to uh, work more strategically together. And I also work on the Campaign for Safe Cosmetics. And just give us a quick synopsis of your work with the Campaign for Safe Cosmetics and the extraordinary media exposure you yeah, just got. So um, in mid-March, March 13th, we released a report called No More Toxic Tub and it was about uh, contaminants in babies' bath products. And we found formaldehyde and one dioxane and the majority of products we tested. And we released this report, and um, I have to say it's gone uh, viral. It's been really incredible. <laughs> they, um, people were pulling products off the shelves in China, and Johnson & Johnson's um, share value dropped because of the news. And, um, we've been working behind the scenes, and now we officially know that we'll be introducing federal legislation to reform the cosmetic industry this year. So hopefully, hopefully mid-May or so. So. And I should just quickly say that in 2008, uh, we had uh, convened a, a, a meeting here at Commonweal with leading researchers in the field of women's health and, um, and endocrine disruptors. And so 
I thought I'd mention that because we, uh, Heather actually wrote some of the, the outreach materials that were used in the campaign and some other policy work going on, um, and we have them here, and they're really focused on uh, female reproductive health and endocrine disruptors. I just want to call out any other expertise in the room. I just want to identify, are there any other people with sort of professional background and expertise on chemical contaminants and health that want to uh, say hello? I know there are a lot of people interested, so <laughs> that's not what I was asking. We can get to that, but I just wondered if there was anybody else with specific expertise. Great. So with that, Julia Brody, uh, you have a presentation and we'd love to hear it. Okay, I do want to thank Che and Commonweal also not only for hosting this event but also for, for generating the the human infrastructure across the country that supports this work. It really wouldn't happen without people um, all across the country saying we need to know this, we need to make this happen. So I really thank, thank you for creating that network across the country. And I'm very touched to see all of you here today um, and especially any of you who may have been participants in the household exposure study that I'm going to talk about. I really thank you very much for opening your homes to us, quite literally. Um, that's a great gift to, to um, this study and also to others who are trying to understand uh, pollution as we're exposed to it very personally. Um, thank you very much. So um, I am going to talk about findings of the household exposure study. Um, and I'll just give you a quick introduction. So this study is now taking place in um, three communities. It started on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and then moved to Richmond and to Bolinas. Um, so it now encompasses 170 homes that are in places that are quite different in some ways. Um, quickly, a little background about why we did this work. Uh, as Michael said, the uh, Silent Spring Institute is, was founded by leaders of the Massachusetts Breast Cancer Coalition to answer the question, why is there higher breast cancer incidence on Cape Cod than in the rest of the country? And at the same time, women in Marin County and on Long Island were asking that very same question. And a variety of different research approaches arose from that. Um, and the Cape Cod study actually includes an epidemiologic study of 2,100 women, which strengthened the evidence that there may be an environmental factor in, at play there. Every once in a while, the Cape Cod, Times, Cape Cod Times reporter calls me up and says, so, have you found the smoking gun? Um, and the truth is, we aren't looking for a smoking gun with breast cancer. We know there isn't going to be a smoking gun because we know already that it's multifactorial. And indeed, most of what we know about the causes of breast cancer are, are things that you can ask about on the telephone. So we know that there's higher risk for women who were older when they had their first kid or younger when they had their first period or higher for women who use hormone replacement therapy. But you can't really call someone up and say, okay, I know that natural estrogen increases breast cancer risk. I know that pharmaceutical estrogens like hormone replacement therapy increase breast cancer risk. Well, what about 
estrogen mimics in your drinking water? How, how much of that have you been ingesting? And, and what about uh, any estrogen mimics in the water when your mom was pregnant and your breast was first developing or when you were a teenager? What about estrogens that might be in your laundry detergent? So you can see we have a very different kind of problem. And that's led our research team to use a, a different conceptual model. So when you read in the newspaper, there's no evidence that X causes breast cancer. What that means is there's no epidemiologic study yet that shows that. But we are working from a different framework that looks at what we know about biology. So we know from studies of cells and from studies of animals that there are chemicals in everyday products that can mimic estrogen and we refer to them as endocrine disrupting compounds. And these are chemicals that will make breast cancer cells grow. We know that there are chemicals that can cause mammary gland tumors in animals. And in fact, um, Susan Braun, we owe great, uh, great gratitude uh, during her time as CEO at Komen. She commissioned a, a major science literature review and Silent Spring Institute was fortunate to be chosen to do it and that enabled us to create the most comprehensive list of these chemicals that cause mammary gland tumors in animals. Ruth Ann is the author of that work. And there's a database on our website that contains all the information. We found about 216 chemicals that fit that category. And then there's a third biological mechanism that we're, we're focused on and that of only a few chemicals have been studied so far, but we found that some of these endocrine disruptors operate prenatally. So we know in animals that if the mom is exposed while she's pregnant, the daughter's mammary gland never fully develops and the daughter remains vulnerable to, to carcinogens later in life. So that biological mechanism box has got a lot of science in it. And our perspective is that if you know that, if you know that there are these plausible biological mechanisms and you know that people are exposed to those suspect chemicals, then you have a basis for action. Action like the Campaign for Safe Cosmetics or like the Kids Safe Chemicals Act and other, other activities that people are engaged in now to try to reduce exposure. So we focus a lot of our research agenda on filling that human exposure box. What is it that we're exposed to every day? And the household exposure study originated from that, that goal. So we're now testing for 153 compounds, 89 are endocrine disruptors, that is chemicals that affect hormones. When we moved to Richmond, we added a lot of industrial pollutants because uh, that's the picture of Richmond in the second from the bottom. You can see there's some, some industrial polluters there. Um, and as a matter of fact, many of these air pollutants are mammary gland carcinogens. So there's a lot of overlap between the interests of the breast cancer advocacy that brought Silent Spring Institute to this work and the environmental justice advocacy that brought our partners at Community for a Better Environment into this project. Um, for 30 of those endocrine disruptors, our measures in the Cape Cod study were the first time these had ever been measured indoors. These were the first reports from indoor environments. So um, we tested air and dust. 
and we tested both indoors and outdoors. And then we reported back to participants in the study on what we found in their home. These are some, uh, some examples. I'd just like to spout out some of the names so when you hear them in the news, you, maybe they'll, as you hear them in the news a few times, they start to click. So phthalates, you may have heard about their anti-androgens. Um, Alkylphenols are in detergents. They break down into estrogenic compounds. The flame retardants, polybrominated diphenyl ethers, these are thyroid disruptors, and I'm going to be talking about those some more. Um, and on down the list, uh, banned and current use pesticides and a variety of other chemicals. I want to focus on results in two major areas. First, environmental justice. Um, which means the uh, inequitable distribution of environmental risks. And second, our findings that relate to consumer products and chemicals policies about consumer products. So this is our Richmond study community up in the triangle, Liberty and Atchison villages. You can see they're right next to a Chevron oil refinery and surrounded by rail and truck routes and near a marine shipping terminal. So this is quite different from our grassy suburbanish Cape Cod. Um, and we weren't sure our what we weren't sure what we find here, but we came into this with, with two questions that we hoped would advance the work of our partners at Communities for a Better Environment. First what is the cumulative impact? Our regulatory system is set up to deal with one chemical at a time. That's not how we breathe them in. So what would we, what would we see if we looked across the board, indoors and outdoors, at chemicals in this community? And second, how do polluters affect their next door neighbors, the homes right next to them? Could we actually, um, could we actually document markers inside the homes of pollution from the refinery? and show that outdoor pollution is coming in from coming indoors. So I'm going to begin res the results and there are some graphs and if you're if you're not a graph reader just like breathe deeply and listen because <laughs> I'm going to tell you everything that's in the graphs. So um, this is kind of the, the the top line big picture, we did find more pollution outdoors and indoors in Richmond as we expected. The blue bars are Richmond, the gold ones are Bolinas. Um, you may be interested to see that the, the difference is more pronounced indoors than outdoors. We found uh, more pollutants indoors in both communities and the, and the differential is greater for indoors. Could you go back to that, Julia, for just yeah. a sec? Because that's such a big deal, right? That the uh, that the indoor differential is larger than the outdoor differential. Is yeah, and our whole environmental protection thing is built around outdoor monitoring. Right, mm -hmm. but it's not intuitively obvious if you're in Richmond that outdoor pollution would be less different from Bolinas than indoor pollution. Could you just say? Why, would that, Why be? would that be? Well, there are two reasons. One is that they're indoor sources, which you'll, okay. you'll see later. Um, they're indoor sources, and the other reason is that some of them build up indoors. Okay, good. Concentrations are higher indoors, and so right. okay. Good. 
So looking more closely at particulate matter, fine particulates, are they, you breathe them deeply into your lungs, so they affect respiratory and heart problems. And just focusing to the right on the indoor data, again, uh, blue is Richmond, gold is Bellinas, and these boxes, the boxes represent most of the homes, and the black line in the middle is the median, so half the homes are above and half are below. And that red dotted line is the California Ambient Air Standard. So you can see that um, nearly half the homes in Bellinas exceed the ambient uh, air standard. The indoor levels exceed the ambient air standard. In Bellinas or Richmond? I mean, oh, yeah. in Richmond, thank they you. But if you were looking at outdoor levels only, you wouldn't see that most of, the, most of the outdoor samples were below the standard. We did find markers of heavy oil combustion, um, both outdoors and indoors in Richmond. These are uh, compounds associated with, with uh, oil refining and with marine shipping. So this, these graphs compare our Richmond and Bolinas homes with the California air monitors, which are set up all around the state, and they're, they put them in places where they think there may be a problem, so they're not representative of the full range. Um, then the bad, the bad is on the left, so high, higher levels of pollution are on the left, lower levels on the right, and the, the yellow stars are Bellinas, the red stars are Richmond. So you can see, um, as you would expect, Bellinas comes out clean in comparison with the monitored communities. Richmond doesn't do too bad on the regional air pollutants because it's so close to the coast. But when you look at vanadium and nickel, which are specific markers of, of heavy oil combustion, you see that Richmond is up at the very highest end of the, the measurements that have been taken in California. So um, summarizing our environmental justice work, we found significantly more pollutants and higher concentrations in Richmond. We found that outdoor pollutants do penetrate indoors. We found that indoor concentrations are often higher than outdoors. That heavy oil combustion leaves a distinctive footprint in homes, and Richmond is more affected by this than other communities in California. So um, I know that even on the East Coast, we read with great celebration a deal that was made with one of the oil refineries to buy trees and um, reduce its global warming effect. Um, but those trees are not going to be in Richmond. So from an environmental justice perspective, we need to think about some other deals that are implied by our data. Uh, turning now to the endocrine disruptors and uh, think the pollution that we brought home from the store. So our research questions for this portion of the study were, again, what's out there? Which chemicals would we detect and how much? There's this very new field of research, so we, we didn't really know. And are there outdoor sources? These are the first time, this is the first time any of these, many of these chemicals have been measured outdoors. And are the communities different? Okay, now everybody, like, take a minute and make your bet. <laughs> what are you expecting? So um, this, this represents data from all the California homes, Richmond and Bolinas together, and the reason we put them together is that Richmond, Bolinas, and the Cape are very similar. 
um, for these indoor pollutants, even though these communities are different in a variety of ways. So we found on average about 21 endocrine disruptors uh, in air per home, about 36 per home in dust. We found 21 different pesticides, phthalates in every home. Remember, those are they're anti-androgens. So the effects that we know about have been observed in baby boys. Uh, we found uh, parabens in air in 30% of the homes. Those are uh, weak estrogen mimics. And uh, flame retardants we found at the highest levels in the world. And I'll be, be coming back to that shortly. Uh, for 12 of the endocrine disruptors that we tested, we found levels that were above a health guideline. And many of them don't have health guidelines. Uh, we also found that nearly ever every home had at least one compound above a health guideline. And this was true in our Cape Cod study as well. So I uh, mentioned that phthalates were found in every home. Here's some more detail about one of the phthalates, dibutyl phthalate. It's a uh, plastic softener, so it's, it's used in cosmetics, and it's in kids' modeling clay and packaging. And um, so starting on the left, the outdoors, blue is Richmond, gold is Bellinas, and you can see there's not very much outdoors. So uh, overall, we found the endocrine disruptors do not have outdoor sources. Um, and then turning to the right-hand side of the graph, which is indoors, if you look at that middle bar for Richmond and the middle bar for Bellinas, you can see they're almost identical. There really is not much difference between these two, two communities. You see more variation in the homes in Richmond, but, but overall, they're very similar. So um, we think about this as some, we can infer that this is coming from indoors because the indoor levels are higher. And also on the right, this graph shows that they're not correlated. So we asked, if we measured it outside your house and inside your house, did those numbers relate to each other at all? And the answer was no. Uh, in contrast, for the industrial pollutants uh, like sulfates, you see a, a very direct correspondence for if it's an industrial pollutant, what you have outside your house is, predicts what you would have inside your house. Mm -hmm. So I did bring a few results that are specific to Bellinas. Mm -hmm. And the, the bottom, oh, the colors don't show up too well, but the, the, the message of this gestalt is, Y'all have been using a lot of pesticides over the years. Um, and so have other communities. So every circle represents a Bellinas home. Every line represents a different pesticide. So you see we detected a lot of different pesticides in a lot of houses. Um, the vertical lines represent the medians and the maximums for Richmond and for Cape Cod. And you can Cape Cod is kind of hanging out there on the high end. But, but overall, the medians of these communities are not very different. Um, the bottom of the, you can see a light shading at the bottom. Those chemicals have been banned. So DDT, third from the bottom, banned in 1972, detected in almost every home. Is yeah. There, is there any consequence, yeah. um, i say, is there any supposition that any of these chemicals arise in other arise in place from other sources, other purposes than pesticide use? In other words, do they have other mm. chemical pictures to them besides pesticide, the same chemicals? 
Are these distinctly pesticides? These are, well, most of them are distinctly pesticides. We included some synergists. Um, do you have anything to add to that, Ruthann? No, I don't think so. These are pretty specific. Oh, that, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Do they have to originate at the source, or can they be carried from somewhere else? Could they be from Not agricultural? Something. No, agricultural runoff. They, they, and, the, and the water coming down and then pooling in certain areas and then going into the home. That would be a possibility. I think probably most of these were used inside. Okay, now we're at the headline story here. Um, California has an unusual furniture flammability standard. Technical Bulletin 117 requires that polyurethane foam used in furniture withstand an open flame for 12 seconds before it combusts. And in response to that, manufacturers have put a lot of flame retardants into furniture. Um, and the ones that were used for many years were these polybrominated diphenyl ethers. Um, so we found that this, the ones that are shown on this graph are part of the Penta BDE formulation. Uh, this Amizota is the first author of our published paper reporting this, which came out just last year. Um, and you can see that the California levels are about 200 times higher than levels in Europe where these chemicals have been phased out and were not used as much. And uh, compared with the U.S., about 4 to 10 times higher than other, other places that have been measured in the U.S. You see the Cape Cod study is um, shown sort of in the, in the middle there. So th um, those are directly comparable since we use the same exact methods in both, both communities. So um, when we saw this great disparity in the dust levels, we wondered what the implications might be for body burden. And we asked the Centers for Disease Control for permission to analyze their national uh, blood samples that are used for the National Exposure Report. And um, we found that California's, California residents statewide had about twice the levels of uh, PBDEs in their blood as others in the U.S. Um, we recently did a AMI did a AMI and Ruthann did a, a further analysis of this. As it's common when we publish an article for um, a chemical manufacturer or other industry representative to write a letter about our uh, article, challenging whether it's important or not. Like, who cares if you have this in your blood? Um, <laughs> And that led us, uh, in 2008, the EPA did uh, establish a health guideline for PBDEs, and this led us to a further analysis of the California participants um, that, sh that showed that 40% of the California homes in our study exceeded the uh, new EPA health guideline. So this has been a very, this has been a sobering story. And I've come to see the flame retardants as a kind of poster child for why we need a proactive, comprehensive chemicals policy. So we made mistakes like this before, DDT being a good example. Um, we put these brominated flame retardants into use without testing them. 
We, we found out they were not safe. We couldn't get them back. They're persistent. The chemicals themselves are persistent. Plus, people don't want to get rid of their couches. So they got banned in California and many other states. And now substitutes are coming into use to meet the uh, flame retardant requirement. Um, these substitutes, some of them are untested. Some of them are less safe. Mm. Um, meanwhile, the manufacturers, the, the chemical companies, are seeking to expand these flammability standards to other kinds of products like bedding and to expand them nationally. And uh, even though uh, California has shown no, there's, they've seen no fire safety benefit in California compared to the rest of the country during the time this flammability standard has been in place. So um, it's a strong story that we, that we need a different approach. And uh, again, I just applaud Che and Safe Cosmetics campaign and the Biomonitoring Resource Center and the many people affiliated with this network who are working to develop a, a more comprehensive and, and proactive approach. Uh, we were pleased to see that there was a great deal of attention to these results. Uh, Representative uh, Leno asked the governor to suspend Technical Bulletin 117. That didn't happen, but there will be some new action in the legislature. Um, it was also interesting to see that it was reported actively in the business press. The very first place to report the story was the Wall Street Journal Market Watch. So um, I think there is an opportunity for market-driven, some, some market response to this kind of research. So the, the summary of what we found in, indoors is we found many chemicals in every home and very few differences between Richmond and Bolinas. We found banned and current use pesticides in nearly every home. We found high levels of these brominated flame retardants, most likely due to the California strict fire safety standard. I want to say a word about the next phase of our study, which involved going back to report to participants and then asking them about their experiences of being in the study. Um, we did this on Cape Cod and uh, Phil's student, now graduate, Rebecca Altman, interviewed many of our participants and published a, a journal article about it. And she found that participants wanted to get their results. I'll be interested to hear what people in this room may have to say about this, um, and that people experienced a, a kind of reframing, that they had an image of pollution as coming out of a smokestack or an industrial source, and suddenly realized it was coming from things that they had brought home from the store, and that no one was really checking to see if these things were safe. And um, that led many people to reflect on family illnesses and the possibility that exposures from common everyday sources might, might play a role. And a sense of, wait, I didn't tell you it was okay to put these kinds of chemicals in products that were going to be in my house and, and end up in my body. Um, we did find many people interested in becoming engaged, both in making new, new decisions for themselves, but also uh, at a broader level, joining with others to, to create solutions. And that's been one of the most gratifying outcomes of, of our research. I want, I want to again thank, thank my team. 
Um, this has been a very rich and wonderful partnership. We, we started out with a hope of bringing together breast cancer advocacy and environmental justice advocacy um, to uh, explore our mutual interests in pollutants that may affect a, a very wide variety of diseases. And it's, it's been a very uh, rich experience working together. I'm, I'm hoping our communities for a better environment folks aren't, aren't too lost on the road and will be here soon to uh, speak from their perspective. Thank you very much. So, wonderful presentation, Julia, thank you very much. And there's so many pieces of this, but I want to start by asking, there's no requirement that anybody whose home was tested in Bolinas identify themselves, but I'd like to give, if there are people here whose homes were tested in Bolinas who would like to uh, start the questions, I'd, I'd welcome that. Anybody here who uh, fits in that category who wants to say something? Well, I don't have any questions for you, but uh, we had high levels of phthalates in our home, uh -huh. which I was stunned to find out because we tried so hard to have a pretty safe house. So uh -huh. uh, we, I, I changed a lot of products I was using, mm -hmm. you know, oh. just almost right away. Just mm -hmm. we don't need that, mm -hmm. and we decided to keep. Uh, we have a couch that must be 26 years old. Maybe it's pre-PVD. Pre-PVD. <laughs> and it's ratty, but we'll, we're going to keep it until we find an alternative. <laughs> I, sp I slept last night on a foam pad at a friend's house that had a tag on it that specifically said, this, it's, uh, this is not wow. fire safe. And it was uh, an Oakland futon oh. company. So that was... That was interesting to know that there are alternatives available here. We've got two questions in the back. Julia, start. I was going to say, um, that's funny that Charles said, um, made the comment about phthalates, because that's the one thing that uh, really struck me with my results. And I couldn't, for the life of me, figure out what they were coming from. And I couldn't think of anything that I had or even used at the time that would have them in there. So that's actually the one thing that really um, struck me out of the out of the study and the PVDEs of course but I sort of knew that that was coming. We have a plan to try to reduce ex exposures. We have a plan. We've sent a, a bunch of different of uh, ones of the green products to the lab and tested them to be sure they really are green. Um, and we have a plan to see if we can, if we give a person a whole grocery bag full of alternative products and come back in a couple of months, would their phthalate levels and levels of other things be lower? Mm -hmm. So we hope we'll have better answers. Well, I was wondering what products you changed that had phthalates. Um, well, it's not always easy to find yeah. out what products don't have phthalates in them. But I really try to get rid of any products in my house that might have a fragrance as listed as an ingredient, uh -huh. just for a starter. And I, I'm one of those people that used to love to walk by a perfume counter and just try on every possible thing. <laughs> um, so much so when I walk down the street, people would kind of chuckle as I walk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so try to get rid of all, everything with a, a fragrance mostly. 
fragrances. Yeah. Of and then, of course, we try to avoid any plastics at all. Of course, they do come in here and there. But plastics? Yeah, like soft plastics, yeah. Plastic bags. Soft plastic? Yeah. Ruthanne? The fragrances um, mostly have one particular phthalate, which is diethyl phthalate, which actually <coughs> itself doesn't appear to be an endocrine disruptor, but in some of the human studies, um, along with the other phthalates that are endocrine disruptors, it does come up and show some positive associations with some of the outcomes. So it's a bit of a puzzle why it does, and, and it may be that that it's uh, some of the fragrance molecules actually, and that the diethyl phthalate is a kind of a proxy or a marker for some chemicals that are used in fragrances. Mm -hmm. um, but, and then, it's, so, so there's, there's a reason, you know, th there is some evidence from the human studies that would say, uh, get rid of, fra of, of fragrances or limit, you know, the use of uh, fragrances, but, um, but the diethyl phthalate itself, which is usually the phthalate that's in them, um, maybe not necessarily the bad actor in the fragrance mix. And then the other phthalates, um, dibutyl, um, is the one in the modeling clay. And apparently, I've heard in Europe, in European perfumes, it was more often used in, uh, in fragrances and um, as a carrier. So European perfumes might be worse than American perfumes. <laughs> um, and, uh, so, and then a lot of plastics have some of the other phthalates. Ruthann, you uh, did this extraordinary database of uh, chemicals associated with breast cancer. Uh, we have a number of two nurse practitioners from the Bolinas family practice here. Uh, Dale Gold and Patty Bradford are both here. Uh, if um, women in Bolinas wanted to avoid sort of categories of products that would strike you as most saliently things you wouldn't want in your home or with raising young children and things like that. What categories of products just did you come to see as particularly problematic in that respect? Um, did we come up with a top five list? I'm trying to remember. Well, that. I was going to say, I would say among the mammary gland carcinogens, uh, uh, diesel and PAHs, mm -hmm. so not a product, but air pollution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, diesel, diesel pollution, like and PAHs. And so, uh, actually, this is an important topic for this community. Your wood stove is a source of PAHs. Uh huh. That's a big deal. Yeah. yeah. And um, so, we had some handouts about wood stoves. There are some different, uh, I understand they're on, you can pick them up on the way out. But there are some uh, models that will uh, emit fewer of the PAHs. Mm -hmm. other, other questions? Arthur. Yeah, well, um, well my house is going up, uh, Belinda's house is tested, and um, my wife was having problems breathing in our house for a while. And we took, uh, I think, because of the report from Silent Spring, we decided to take out the carpet and replace mm. it with a bamboo floor, mm -hmm. which has helped tremendously. And since then, my oh, I'm so been, glad. Since then, my wife has been diagnosed with uh, emphysema. Mm. I'm sorry to hear that. But her breathing in the house has improved since we removed the carpet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah that's another good <coughs> suggestion. And I was going to actually try to uh, follow on to your question was uh, in terms of purchasing um, the um, the flame retardants are hard to avoid or can be hard to avoid, especially if you live in California. <laughs> but um, uh, Stain-resistant coatings are now very um, popular, like the Scotchgard type of thing that you can get new furniture sprayed with, and also you can get clothes uh, on which you can dump a cup of coffee and brush it off and um, and look fine. And those uh, uh, are, I think, <coughs> mostly made with these uh, perfluorinated compounds, which has been shown to cause some mammary gland tumors and have some other uh, other problems associated with them. So that's another category. Thank you. And Dale, yes? I wanted to ask a question about Clorox um, bleach because I've had some big debates with people I live with about whether we should use the bleach or not. Um, and, and their side of it is, oh, that's the only thing that will really take care of the bacteria on our dishes and in our clothes. And I'm saying, you know, it, it's, you know, bad for the environment, you know, it doesn't really, you know, go away as fast as one thinks it does, you are breathing it, and that it influences and, and disrupts our septic system. I like a very selective use of bleach <coughs> myself, um, because especially something like mildew, um, it's it's very difficult to, to get rid of it um, any other way, but, uh, but I mostly tr try to avoid a situation where you need to use it, and remember that when you are putting it into uh, the waste stream, you're putting a lot of chlorine in, and, and, uh, and that chlorine reacts then with other compounds uh, that are in the waste stream. That's where some uh, kind of more problematic chemicals get created. Yeah. So. A question right back there, yes. I'm sorry, I came a little late, so I didn't get to see the beginning of the presentation, but I was just curious why you picked Bolinas, and maybe you already talked about this, but um, it must have been quite surprising to find these kind of numbers here when it seems like such a, uh, a community that's very aware of these kind of things. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we picked Bolinas because we were looking for, we, we started... Um, we expanded the household exposure study from Cape Cod, Massachusetts to Richmond, California, and our advisory council, which included Charles, um, advised us that they would like to have a uh, California rural comparison, not just a Massachusetts rural comparison. And Charles was kind enough to um, check around and see if people would be interested in participating, and that's how we made the connection to this community. As to whether we were surprised or not, um, I think that in our work we've come to feel that many of these pollutants are quite ubiquitous and that it's not easy to reduce your exposure uh, very dramatically. And um, I was, so I was maybe just a little bit surprised. Ned? Um. Two questions. One, one, to come back to the bleach issue, is there a difference in your opinion between the oxygen, or, uh, that kind of bleach, uh, what's the, the, the non-chlorine bleaches versus the, the chlorine bleaches in terms of your sense of, of uh, contaminant creation? Uh, well, I don't know too much about the uh, oxygen bleaches. I, 
I guess if you were going to use something routinely and you felt like you really needed to bleach it, then the oxygen bleaches, if they work, would be preferable. And then the second question is, is that is it in your either awareness of what you've done or what others have done in the same vein, is there a significant difference in human uptake amongst individuals? Meaning that if I'm exposed to one chemical and this gentleman's exposed to a chemical and so on, is there considerable variability in terms of the consequence of that in terms of both biomonitoring and then possibly other things that would follow from that? Um, I'm not so sure about the uptake question, but there certainly are differences in metabolism. So, yes, it is, it is likely that one person's response to a particular contaminant situation will differ from another person's response. Um, I've thought about that because um, in the breast cancer literature review that we did with, with Susan's leadership, um, the, the strongest evidence of a link between a chemical and breast cancer is for PCBs, and the link is found only in uh, women who have a per particular genetic variation that relates to metabolism. And um, there's, that's, in a very, that's an important finding, and there's been a, like, an explosion of interest in these interactions between genes and environment, but you can't just and, and it leads to discovery, important discoveries that you might not otherwise see. But it, it's difficult on the action side because you can't just move the vulnerable people to a particular place and pollute there and protect the other people. Well, I guess from speaking as a clinician, from a clinical point of view, the, the consequence of, of medicinals that are taken that are endocrine or estrogenic in their nature has such enormously wide variability and, and some of the clinical consequences, negative and positive, are also extremely variable. And so I guess I'm that would be my hope that, I think that, we would expect that. That, that your 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 sort of study would, would not just your personal study, but this general world of study would embrace that that issue and, and of course they're doing it in, gen in genetic research today, I mean already, but I guess I'm hoping that we'll continue sure. to evolve. Yeah. Just to add to that, I mean, in terms of uptake, um, there is a big difference between children and adults, right. especially when you think about dust. Yes. Um, so dust, I mean, because of hand-to-mouth behaviors, you know, dust um, tends, I mean, children eat, right. you know, non-accidentally -ac eat a lot more dust. And then, you know, because if you think, when you t especially when you take into account that they weigh a lot less, um, pollutants and dust have a much larger impact on children than adults. Yes, comment back. Uh, did you say you were going to speak about thyroid? The, the brominated flame retardants are thyroid disruptors, mm -hmm. so they affect thyroid hormone levels in adults, and, um, that, and another consequence of that is that they affect brain development in, in the child if, if the mother via the mother's thyroid mm -hmm. levels. Comment right back there, yeah. Yes? There was a question about okay. that, yeah. Yeah. Well, She said what I was going to ask the question about, but having to follow up on uh, disease uh, situations having to do with immune deficiencies and other kinds of diseases, is there a way, or are researchers now looking at what you're doing and correlating with, with the communities, for instance, the low thyroid, um, nearly everybody I know has a thyroid problem. Mm -hmm. In California, <laughs> and my, my thought is, 
is research or is this stimulating more research in those areas? That's a very important research area. In fact, we are going to be asking the CDC to include thyroid in the same uh, people that they measure the brominated flame retardants. CDC being the Centers for Disease Control. For Thank anyone. you. So we have some colleagues here from Richmond now, and Julia, would you like to uh, introduce them? I am, I am so delighted to introduce them. It has been an enormous pleasure to work with our colleagues at Communities for a Better Environment, uh, Nao Malloy and Jessica Tavar. Uh, we're going to be speaking in Richmond tomorrow and um, wish some of you would perhaps like to come down the hill <laughs> and hear more detail about the environmental justice findings of our work. But, um, and I, I do want to give uh, Niall and Jessica a chance to speak themselves and tell a little bit about their work. Would you like to get settled for a yeah, few minutes? Yeah, I just or? it's like a little bit unfair. I was like, yeah. you need a glass of water first. So, shall we let you kind of settle in and then ask you to? Okay, okay Michael, good. we'll come back to you. And we're really honored. You know, we Communities for a Better Environment is a, a colleague organization that we think very highly of, and so honored that you're here. So thank you for making the trek. So we've heard Julia's presentation, and we've just been asking questions, and perhaps the most striking aspect of the presentation was that while the outdoor air pollution between Richmond and Bolinas differed in important respects, and while there were certain industrial chemicals that were higher in Richmond, that, the, that there were a whole set of household chemicals that were strikingly comparable in Richmond and Bolinas, really strikingly, uh, including the uh, PBDEs that are found in household furniture where uh, California leads the world. Um, and so that's been the, the, the core of the conversation. Is that a, a fair? Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to ask you, Julia, um, we know that PBDs are, are very, uh, very uh, high. Uh, we lead the world in that dubious distinction. What do we know about the health effects in animal studies of PBDEs on human development? Well, they are consistently shown to be thyroid disruptors. Right. And uh, Ami, you want to provide <clears throat> some more detail? Um, so right now, um, right, so they, they, they mimic thyroid hormones. And right. um, what we know is that um, when a woman is pregnant, especially in the first trimester of pregnancy, um, fluctuation in the mother's thyroid levels have a big impact on the brain development of a fetus. And so a lot of animal studies have, uh, have shown that high PBDEs um, in the animals lead to impaired uh, brain development in, um, in animals. The human studies are essentially just now in process. So there are um, human health studies that actually in California right now that are looking at associations between uh, PBDEs and autism. Mm -hmm. um, autism is on the rise um, across the U.S. and um, there's a lot of work showing that it may uh, possibly be because of the increase in PBDEs as well as pesticides. Mm -hmm. um, there are also ongoing human health studies to try to look at 
um, how these are affecting neurodevelopment in kids early in life and also if there are any synergistic impacts um, that may be happening between uh, PBDEs and PCBs or PBDEs and other uh, pesticides because many of them um, you know, have the potential to impact the developing brain. Um, so right now what we know is that they cause a lot of um, bad health impacts in animals and um, the human health uh, evidence at this point is very, I guess, early on. Uh, there have been two studies that have shown that um, it seems to lead to uh, babies being born with a slightly lower weight and one European study found that uh, PBDEs was associated with crypto, crypto chidism, I think. Cryptorchidism. Cryptorchidism, yeah. right, which is uh, um, uh, kind of... Uh, it's a male development. Right, testes development, right. right. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, Ruth. I was just going um, to add to that. The, 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 the PBDEs are very uh, similar in structure and in uh, um, effect to PCBs. Um, the PCBs have been uh, much better studied in humans. There's much stronger evidence, uh, and uh, and in humans, uh, uh, several studies that clearly show the relationship between in utero exposure to PCBs and and IQ and other uh, neurological uh, outcomes in um, in uh, in kids. Um, the other um, the other area that is kind of interesting about health effects from thyroid disrupting or thyroid affected chemicals is that I think it may be the first uh, arena where um, this, the question of whether a disruption or an effect on changing people's hormone levels is considered adverse or not uh, will maybe play out on a, on a um, kind of regulatory science uh, basis because um, industry has been kind of arguing that our hormone systems provide like a homeostatic control, so if you affect them a little bit, you know, we have a good capacity, it's just an adaptive response, it's not an adverse effect, and um, a new paper review on uh, thyroid hormone is based, is uh, arguing that in, in the human population, within the range of normal uh, thyroid hormone levels, you can see, um, actually you can see adverse effects on development, uh, uh, infant development and also on cardiovascular, on lipid profiles in, uh, in adults, and that based on that, uh, any effect, any chemical exposure that might lower hormone, uh, thyroid hormone levels should be considered adverse. So that's, it's kind of, uh, maybe it's a little esoteric, but kind of very important on the, uh, how people decide to set standards for what's mm -hmm. allowable exposure. I just want to ask Cheryl Patton, who's, uh, as I mentioned, director of the Commonwealth Biomonitoring Resource Center. Uh, you've been listening to the conversation. Any observations on any aspect of it? Oh, like sure. That? Just a little bit about PBDEs. Um, when pregnant rats are exposed to PBDEs, they give birth to babies that can't learn, are hyperactive, uh, can't find their way through a maze. So when I talk about it, I think about flame retardants helping us have the capacity to explore outer space because they're all over the kinds of things that astronauts are wearing. So the chemicals that are helping us allow, allowing us to explore outer space are also making it probably very difficult for your kid to find his way across a crowded street because of the way it affects wow. how the brains work. They are 
they're fat-loving, uh, which is important because it turns out when a woman is pregnant, the fat that she gains, the way she gains right around the time before she gives birth and afterwards, seems to be particularly attractive to PBDEs. There's all higher levels of PBDEs in pregnant women at that time. And there's some evidence that when you're pregnant, a woman's pregnant, she has a different reaction how she takes in chemicals and stores them. And some chemicals that may ordinarily go through the body in 48 hours when you're pregnant may in fact bioaccumulate. And just two projects Commonweal is working on right now. We're going to meet, we're working with Washington State Toxics Coalition to biomonitor two women in California, two women in Alaska, and six in the state of Washington, all of whom are second trimester pregnant for levels of PBDEs and uh, hormone or thyroid hormones. And, and that report will be out probably in the summer just to kind of give a face to what it means to be pregnant and carry these chemicals in your body. And we're also doing a project testing uh, the breast milk of five women, six women, different countries around the world, and release that data about PBDs and breast milk at uh, a Stockholm convention, which is a, a UN convention banning chemicals in Geneva in May, because one of the chemicals that may be added to the list of chemicals that are actionable under the mandate of the treaty is a form of one of the PBDEs. So we hope to move that at the international level, which will then maybe for, force the US to be a little bit more progressive. So just to say that when we biomonitor, it's not necessarily for epidemiological studies. It's to use the information to push for real change. Thank and, you, And sure. put a human face on the studies that the people are doing. So I want to ask our colleagues for Citizens for a Better Environment, um, Communities for a Better Environment, um, uh, Niall Malloy and Jessica Tovar. Do I have your last name mm -hmm. right, Jessica? Uh, do you feel settled enough uh, now to say a few words about your work and your participation in this project? Well, I think it's also Anna Orozco is here too. She's not oh, great, Anna. Manager. And I can start. I'm actually, I joined CBE uh, last August, and so this process has been moving forward. And mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I just appreciate immediately is just the community's response to really mm -hmm. trying to gather this data. Um, in Richmond, in particular, um, the environmental justice fight has been going on for a long period of time, uh, particularly around. Uh, refinery issues, but also issues of transportation, uh, um, you know, issues of land use, all kinds of issues, health impacts um, throughout the community. So this data is actually very super, it's really informative. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm really excited about the community health meeting that we're having tomorrow to really see how the community is going to further respond to this data. Um, so I really want to actually start off by just thanking everyone here um, that's appreciating this process. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing that's really interesting and just in my existence of being on a, in the organization is just how the relation to the indoor and outdoor study um, really made a connection to, we were talking about this on the way up here, of um, looking at the outdoor sources, um, uh, the toxins that are in the air. And the two of the, the key things that came up was looking at the vanadium and nickel Right. Uh, we were talking about this yesterday too in terms of the industrial sources um, and the vanadium nickel and, and anybody can jump into this uh, really has a lot of links into sort of like Chevron particularly in terms of refineries but also uh, maybe links to the port and other just different kind of you know sources of this pollutants and so there's 
So what we're seeing is that there's a cumulative impact of what um, is uh, facing the community. And I feel like from that lens, it's something that CBE has really been um, strong in is that there's multiple factors. It's not just what we've been working on this campaign, looking at Chevron and a refinery expansion around um, reducing the crew cap or block the crew record, stop. Everyone use different one. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a, a major meme in the, the whole community. Even the mayor is using this, we need to stop the crew cap. Um, block the crew, I mean, put a crew cap for, um, for the refineries. And so, um, so the emissions issue and this data just really just a, a powerful correlation. Yeah. Um, I would actually just probably, because there are different people who are actually doing like a lot of the hands-on, on the ground work. And I think that's actually one of the key things that we do, a lot of community organizing. And I think that community-based participatory resource is what has ground the direction of like, where our campaigns is going and also the data that we're collecting to actually support um, our primary target of like getting information around why is this polluter having these larger impacts um, in the community. So if you want to add some other elements, because I think everyone knows what CB is about, where we've been and all that stuff, but I was just trying to get more like up-to-date data about like Thank what's you. really going on. Great. Yeah, so I just want to say kind of what Niall said. Just thank you for participating in the study for those of you who have our staff come into your home because I know that that's probably a little weird thing, uh, weird kind of relationship with an organization. But um, as you can see, like it's been a couple of years and we're still getting information from that data. So it's just that been that much valuable to us um, for the community in Richmond and as well as for you guys to know what... Um, you know, what we're finding in the home, indoors and outdoors. Um, so I just wanted to say say that. And and do you are you guys familiar, is everybody here familiar with CBE? Because, Would you say a few words about yeah, it? Yeah, okay, I'll just describe. We're pretty much like a 30-year-old org organization, and we have, like, um, we pretty much, our organization has community organizers, lawyers, and scientists, and so that's what makes us unique as an organization is we have all that in-house and we're able to work um, with our scientists, but as well as our, you know, allied scientists like um, from Seventh Spring. Um, and so we're able to, to provide, you know, technical assistance to communities. Um, in terms of the campaign against the Chevron expansion, the expansion to refine this dirtier crude, like the Alberta tar sands, um, what we've, we've been able to do is like, well, even though the city granted permits, now we're in a stage where we had, we had, um, we have filed a lawsuit back in September, so we're coming to a point where we're going to have a hearing in a Contra Costa County Court on the issue of the expansion because the city granted permits with missing and erroneous data that was submitted by Chevron. Um, and of course, Chevron throughout the process has said, no, we're not trying to bring in dirtier crude, we're just trying to do upgrades. They hide it under upgrades. And to everybody, that sounds great, but the truth of the matter is, they're just retooling the refinery to begin to process dirtier stuff. And, you know, that affects, obviously, it, it affects the community, the local community, but it is, um, it is a regional issue as well as a climate change issue. So whether you live there or not, you're affected in some way. And so it's important to keep that in mind. So just thank you for, for being a part of this study. And I hope that you can continue to um, support our organization and the work that we're doing. Thank you Thanks. very much. And would Anna, would you like to add anything to that? Sure. Um, 
Um, I started with CVE in October, so a little after a lot of this research was mostly being done over the summer. I am a community organizer as well as Jessica. I work primarily in Richmond, but I also do some work in East Oakland. And um, throughout this process, I've been more involved with the Richmond Health Study. And I'm really looking forward to tomorrow's community meeting where we get to share the results of this health study with um, the community members that have been working with us over the summer and then to go a step farther and decide now what do we do with this information and how can this influence mm -hmm. some of the environmental policy in Richmond mm -hmm. and West Contra Costa County. Could one of you mention some of the significant victories that Communities for a Better Environment has achieved over the last 30 years? What are the, some of the things you're proud of that you've done? I think <laughs> some of the most recent, this was just before I started working at CBE, but I was working for another organization, <coughs> so I'm aware of the campaign, but it was to establish a flare control rule, mm -hmm. and that was back in 2005, I believe. And, and that is pretty much, because what happens is refineries, what they do is they burn off their excess waste mm -hmm. gases off into the air because it's cheap, right? It's cheap to just dump and, you know, so what they do is just, they just burn it off into the air. And while in some cases, if, if gases are backed up, you know, that could pose an explosion problem. And so what we said in that rule is in the only time you can flare is during true actual emergencies to prevent these kind of explosions. But a lot, we found out through our scientists that a lot of flaring that Chevron and the other Bay Area refineries do is actually planned and controllable and preventable. And so we found out that um, Shell, for example, um, they had their refineries retrofitted so that they are able to recycle their gases back and not have to burn them off the way they did. So it's kind of like the whole concept of recycling again and just not being wasteful. Um, and so that was um, one of the more recent victories because when we were able to get win that rule with the air district up in the north, then the Southern California communities where CBE also works, um, with the refineries, those communities were able to fight for the same thing and got, you know. Well, again, I just want to say you represent a historic major environmental justice organization. We're very proud and honored that you're here with us and Thank look you. forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you very much. So are there other questions and comments for Julia Brody? Yes. I do have a question. Uh, you were speaking about the uh, levels of pesticide in, here in Bolinas. I live in Bolinas, so I'm sort of interested in what you said, that there was actually a fair amount of DDT present. And you said that, I believe you said mm -hmm. that DDT was banned in 72, is that correct? Yes. Then, do you know if these houses that were tested were built before or after 1972? Uh, we do know that. I don't know that off the top of yeah. my head. That's a part yeah. of the analysis that we haven't done, but I would yeah. certainly speculate that they were. Uh, built since and we, we've analyzed that for our yeah. Cape Cod homes. Mm -hmm. um, we've analyzed that for our Cape Cod homes, and we did find that the, the older homes had, were more likely to have DDT in them mm -hmm. than homes built since then. I was surprised that some of the homes built after 1972 also have DDT, and we, we speculate that is... Uh, because of stuff that people brought with them. Yeah, some kind of migration. Where does the DDT hang out in a house? 
Uh, well, for, uh, an example of how it might be in a house that was built after 1972 would be in a rug. But um, Ruth Ann uh, explains this by saying uh, if you use DDT in your home, well, think about if you put your couch out on the street, it won't look too good in 30 years, but if you leave your couch in the living room, it's maybe not like it was 30 years ago, but it's still basically intact. So indoors where there's no sunlight and um, no we other weather, mm -hmm. weathering, uh, these chemicals can be persistent for a long time. Yes? I was just curious if you looked into chemicals and cleaning products like for clothing, laundry. Um, it seems to be, I think it's called non-phenanol. Alkalphenols. <laughs> yes, because I just wrote a story on Tamales Bay, and apparently we have very high levels of it in Tamales Bay. Mm -hmm. Ah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was curious about... Well, that is, an, that is a concern that they end up in water, so water bodies. Yeah. Um, yes, the alkalphenols were among the compounds in this study. I don't know if you want to add a comment about that, Ruthann? Well, what's, what's that bay... What, Tamales Bay? Mm -hmm. Oh. It's, uh, is, there a lot of, is there wastewater um, yeah, there's input? There's faulty septic systems. Mm -hmm. It's only septic out here, so it's probably coming and from septic. Uh, no, there's been um, a, a lot of research on uh, endocrine disruptors from wastewater treatment plant discharges um, be because of the discovery um, 15 or 20 years mm -hmm. ago of, of hermaphrodite fish mm -hmm. in rivers downstream of uh, where wastewater treatment plants uh, discharge and um, and so and that and that area of research has expanded to include not just the alkaphenols that come from detergents and other synthetic chemicals, but also uh, pharmaceutical <coughs> hormones that we excrete and endogenous or natural hormones that we excrete, um, uh, which are also active in in causing those effects. Um, and the major research programs that are funded nationally are looking at. Uh, at wastewater treatment plants, which are typically discharging to rivers uh, or um, or marine um, and water, and looking at drinking water treatment, usually from um, surface water. On Cape Cod, we uh, have all septic systems, and everybody's drinking from shallow, uh, shallow, sandy groundwater wells. And so there, we've been trying to look at that uh, circulating, basically recharging from septic systems to to drinking water, um, and uh, but that's it's not so much on the radar screen because septic systems in the U.S. are maybe only about 20 or 25 percent of wastewater disposal, and so it's just not getting quite as much attention. I want to ask Susan Braun, uh, since you helped initiate a significant piece of the research that Silent Spring has done when you were at. Uh, when you were CEO of the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Fund. As you listened to this report and, and hear and obviously read the reports that came out in cancer as a result of that study, do you have any reflections on sort of where we've come and where we might be going in, in this field of work? Um. Several. I mean, first, we clearly have come, I'll stand up since I'm back in the back. We, we clearly have come a, a long way, and, and in no small part due to the great work that Silent Spring has done in gathering these, these data together. 
Um, as much as anything, I think what's been important, a, there are the specific findings that are very important in both generating hypotheses as well as in the information itself that's been brought forward. But I think also just in, in casting a light, in this case in breast cancer, onto the basic fact that we don't, this is very, very prevalent cancer in this country and around the world and we just don't really know what causes it. Um, genetic uh, components, people with family history with breast cancer are by far and away the minority. And so what makes up the majority component? And I think that this work goes a long way to help us understand what some of those components are and might be. And then I think also in helping us recognize that um, some of the effects we talked about, the, the persistence of some of these chemicals, that, that maybe some of the effect in the actual development of, of cancers or breast cancer may indeed start a whole lot earlier in life than we might have guessed and or even, you know, been things that have been a part of our environment before um, we were brought into it or our children were brought into it. So those are just a few of the mm -hmm. kind of top-of-mind observations. Mm -hmm. But, Julia, you might have more to add to that since we started to cook this up a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Just, a, again, gratitude, enormous gratitude for your having mm -hmm. led the effort to get Comb and to uh, be interested in looking across the environmental science to see what was known and not yet known. So, Julia, I want to turn to the broader issues that you've done so much pioneering work on in uh, breast cancer. And um, when you talked about breast cancer as a multifactorial disease, that we don't expect a smoking gun like tobacco and, and lung cancer, um, it seems to me, seems to many others in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, that not only breast cancer, but many of the chronic illnesses of our time are these multifactorial diseases where we're not going to get a smoking gun. And as you know, Ted Shetler calls this the ecological health model of disease. Uh, we can call it multifactorial. We can uh, talk about systems biology. We can talk about complexity models, so on and so forth. But the, the model that appears to be uh, emerging is that we've altered the environment in so many different ways, and these different uh, uh, effects on the environment affect our genetic inheritance, and we get different uh, of forms of gene expression, and those different forms of gene expression which are impacted by the interplay between the environment and our genetic inheritance those different forms of gene exp uh, expression in turn interact with environmental factors. And in different people, these different interactions enter different final common pathways. So that different people may develop breast cancer for different sets of reasons. Uh, other people may develop autism or autistic spectrum disorder diseases for, and also true with Parkinson's disease and many of the neurodegenerative diseases potentially. So we are entering this world which is so different from the world that our regulatory system and our scientific system was originally set up to deal with of enormous complexity. And yet within that complexity there are some strong signals as Pete Meyer would say. There are 
you know, PBDEs in California, for example, seems like a strong signal. So uh, from your point of view, leading from breast cancer, but recognizing that breast cancer is simply a poster child in some sense for this new multifactorial ecological health model, if you, if you agree with that, you might differ with this. Um, how does that change the way we do science and how does that change the way we protect ourselves both as individuals and as uh, citizens uh, from these forms of environmental degradation? Let me just add a couple more thoughts before you go to that because, for example, communities like ours, it's very easy for us to get all caught up on the impact of chemicals, which we're all concerned with. But if you study the impact of uh, uh, socioeconomic disparities on human health, it's a much larger trigger for different health outcomes. And I've often said to the American Cancer Society, if I could choose between ending chemical contamination and ending socioeconomic disparities, I'd pick to end socioeconomic disparities because it's such a far more powerful impact on human health. Uh, but there's socioeconomic disparities, there's exercise opportunities, there's nutrition, there's stress. You know, there are all these multifactorial things. And as one thinks about this ecological health framework, it begins to th seem that if there are any ways that you can reduce stress on the organism or enhance resilience, that will contribute in many diverse ways to diminishing the disease burden on the population. But this complexity requires a new way of thinking for ourselves and our families as citizens, as scientists. And I just wanted to ask, as you've been at the forefront of this uh, revolution in environmental health sciences with respect to breast cancer, how do you think about these issues? A short little question there, right. but I'll give a short, short little answer. Right. I, do, I do agree that this complexity model is where we need to go. Um, and now I'm going to pick up a few little strands mm -hmm. of what you said. Um, one, the, the idea that you have to choose to intervene on this and, or choose to intervene on that. I think, uh, well, one thing that an environmental justice model does for you is to say there are many opportunities for win-win mm -hmm. and um, to intervene in ways that address multiple issues. So if you um, Im improve socioeconomic opportunities in Richmond, create job opportunities, you also create, create an empowered community that can better um, negotiate with the Chevron. And if you create a cleaner Richmond you give kids a better chance to succeed in school, which gives them new economic opportunities. So I think that there's a lot of crossover in these, and that's a, like a, maybe a different part of the complexity, but you could have many opportunities to intervene that would affect both spheres. Um, in terms of the science and what it says about the science and what we should do next, um, I do think we need to go to these precautionary science models to inform policy and not look for 
the smoke. We have to stop looking for the smoking gun if we don't actually believe that that is the model of disease. And that means we have to get away from the kinds of, of research paradigms that have been useful in medicine. Um, and we're sort of always wishing that an environmental epidemiology study would look sort of like a clinical trial, even though we would never do a clinical trial for a pollutant. So um, just to spell this out some more, the way we find out whether drugs work is to um, take a group of people who are similar, um, expose half of them to a drug and half not, and people are willing to volunteer for this because they expect some benefit and they're willing to take some risk to do that and then we watch and see what happens in the two groups but um, you would never do that for a pesticide for example um, but we're looking for that kind of evidence when we evaluate whether pesticide is, is harmful or not and so we have to stop looking for those, for that kind of evidence and start looking for um, the accumulation of evidence from animals, from cells, from multiple diseases, as you said. So, like, we're looking at a biological pathway that might take different forms. So maybe um, estrogen mimics or, or endocrine disruptors more generally affect breast cancer, maybe they affect other hormonal cancers and reproductive health and so on. So um, we have to figure out ways of, of aggregating instead of disaggregating or aggregating along different dimensions, like maybe the ones that work by a particular biological mechanism. Um, and having said that, this field of research has also led me to think about um, chemicals policy as a breast cancer issue. It was actually a conversation with Ted where um, we were thinking about what the California Breast Cancer Research Program could most effectively spend a small portion of its money on to address uh, possible environmental factors. And if you believe in this complexity theory and, and in a model of research that focuses on the biological mechanisms and the human exposure as the basis for action, then you need to focus your intervention on reducing those exposures. And, and chemicals policy provides a, a broad strategic framework for doing that. So I think that we're, we're entering an era in which we really uh, need for health-affected people and um, others who care about health to start thinking about public policy in a very different way. And I, I think that Che has been a, a great mover yeah. of that needed change. Julia Brody, thank you for being with us at the New School. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. 
Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the New School and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the New School.